as we continue to go back and forth through our verse-by-verse expositions of John and Colossians. We completed uh, our study of the incredible first chapter of the Gospel of John and really probably one of the most incredible chapters in all of Scripture, I would say, where we see John so clearly define Jesus as the God-man. And then we were given the testimony of John the Baptist, as well as the account of the first followers of Jesus, there at the end of chapter 1, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And they all give us first-hand testimony that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the one spoken of by the prophets, that He is the Son of God, that He is the King of Israel. And now we move to chapter 2. And here, as you're going to see, we're going to move from verbal testimony to testimony given to us by the works of Jesus. And John is actually, he's going to alternate as we go through this gospel between the words of Christ and the works of Christ. He's going to have us look at the statements that Jesus made that indicate his deity and then also the works that he did that demonstrate and prove beyond the shadow of a doubt his deity. He will do what no one but God can do. And we will see that reality in the very first miracle public miracle that we're going to study today. In fact, we're going to see him do things like heal a dying man, cure a paralyzed man, create food for thousands of people, walk on water, give sight to the blind, Raise a man from the dead who everybody knew had been dead for days. And then to top it all off, he himself is going to rise from the dead. Let me remind you that in John chapter 20 and verse number 30, it says this. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And then in John chapter 21, in verse number 25, it says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So I don't want you to think 
that the miracles that we encounter in the gospel of John are the only miracles that Jesus ever did. Far, far from it. I mean, I just think in my mind about the daily experience of Jesus and the apostles as they went around. Think of all the miracle testimony that happened continuously with Jesus as he was proving his deity. And listen, if all of this miracle testimony that we get out of Scripture is true, then let me ask you a question. Who else could Jesus possibly be but God? I remember when Christy was first coming out of the Mormon theology in which she was raised, and a thought hit me as we were actually watching Jesus of Nazareth on television. And I asked her the question, Christy, if Jesus is not God, then who is he? And the Lord used that question to steer Christy in the right direction away from the Mormon understanding of God. So here in John chapter 2, we're going to see the start of the public ministry of Jesus. And it all begins with a supernatural miracle. So let's start by reading the account in verses 1 through 11. That will be our text for today. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now again, there's no human way to explain Jesus. I mean, he has to be God. If this account was all we had, we would know that because he creates wine out of nothing. 
We already know that he is the creator of the universe because of that incredible verse in John chapter one and verse number three that we studied. This is just one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. John 1, 3, all things came into being through him. Speaking of Jesus, and just in case you didn't understand what that meant, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Is that clear? Now listen to me. Either that's true or that's a lie. Plain and simple. There's no gray area right there in that verse, is there? Do you find one? It's either true or it's not. There's a very clear choice to make when it comes to the person of Jesus for your life and for my life and for the life of every human being. Either he is God or he is not. And my Bible tells me, in fact, Jesus says, if you do not believe that I am he, that is the I am defining him as Yahweh God. If you do not believe that I am God, you will die in your sins. That's what Jesus said. You will endure the eternal judgment of God. Folks, I'm telling you, the line is drawn throughout the history of this world and every single human being must come down on one side or the other, plain and simple. So let's get into more evidence of this reality with this first miracle. And we're going to break this account down into four parts for today. And first, let's start with the party because this was a party. It's a party, in fact, at this time in Jewish history that exceeds all other parties because it's the most important event in the ancient world in the life of a people in a town or a village. It's a wedding. Verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. That identifies this as the most significant and important and carefully planned event that happened in ancient family life back in those days. Notice also, we're told there in verse 1, it's the third day. And that simply means it's the third day after the previous meeting with Philip and Nathaniel that we studied last time that we were here in the Gospel of John. And it also tells us that from the time that John the Baptist stood at the River Jordan and said, Behold the Lamb of God through those first followers that we studied last time, from that day to this day, everything happened in a week. So that's where we are in the chronology of time. They've traveled from across the Jordan and Judah back to Galilee to the village of Cana, which is only about nine miles north of the village of Nazareth. Remember, Cana was Nathaniel's hometown, one of the disciples Jesus just had picked up. And you have to understand, this was a very, very small place. 
Nazareth at the most would have had about 500 people at the time of Jesus. And Cana is a village nine miles away. And it's even smaller than Nazareth. And so understand this. I want you to put this into your mind. For sure, all the people in this area would have known one another. All the people in Cana would have known all the people in Nazareth. They would have farmed together. They would have traded together. Many of them would have been related to one another. And they would have been there, those families in those two towns, going generations back. So all of that considered, you can begin to see how huge an event a wedding was to all these people. And we're certainly not surprised to find Nathaniel there. That's his hometown. And we're not surprised at all to find Mary, the mother of Jesus there, because she had been living in Nazareth for a long time. And we're not even surprised that the rest of these folks from Galilee, the other men, disciples, new disciples that came with Jesus would also be there. Guess what? They would also know all the people who were at the wedding as well. So that that kind of gives you an idea of all the people who were involved at this wedding on this day. Now, before we move on, let me give you a little footnote here. Marriage. Marriage is a condition of life designed and ordained by God and authenticated in an open public covenant between God and man. It's the highest and the noblest and the best of all human relationships. It comes under the heading of common grace, which is a grace gift from God that goes out to all people, whether they believe in him or not. And any society that honors the God-ordained commitment of marriage between one man and one woman for life, any society that elevates God's definition of marriage will know something of the blessing of God and will prosper under the heading of more common grace. But on the other hand, any nation that fails to honor the God-designed, God-ordained institution of marriage between one man and one woman for life is corrupt, and destined for chaos and turmoil and evil and judgment. When marriage is not honored the way God designed it to be, immorality is destined to overrun that culture. The very fabric of society is shredded and our nation, the United States of America, is the first nation in the history of this world to change the definition of marriage away from God's design to make homosexual marriage the law of the land. 
first nation in the history of the world. And the primary agent in making that come about is former President Barack Hussein Obama. He's the primary agent. He purposely put judges on the Supreme Court knowing that they were going to be able to carry out that evil decision. And guess what? America has never been the same since. And we'll probably never give over it until Jesus returns, unless there's a great revival in this land. That, in fact, that decision, Obergefell, was judgment begun in our nation. Elections have consequences down here in responsibility land, folks. And let me tell you something. God will not be mocked. And it's clear from our text here that the Lord Jesus, of of course, he honored marriage by attending and doing his first miracle at a wedding. And as we saw, his mother was there. There's no telling how many generations of her family had lived in Nazareth. And like I said, with Cana just up the road from Nazareth, there would have surely been extended family at this wedding. Cousins probably all had grown up together in the whole area, playing together, just going through life together. And the wedding celebrations back in these days with the Jewish people, it just wasn't for the afternoon. Seven days. Seven days party. When people came to this celebration, they came because prior to the, the celebration, there had been what was called a betrothal period, an engagement period. And that period lasted about a, a year before the actual wedding. It was a legal binding contract that could only be broken by divorce. That was the betrothal period. But the marriage wasn't consummated until after the party was over. That's how it was in ancient Israel. And what was happening? During all that year of the betrothal period, all the way up to the big day, was that the husband-to-be was preparing a place for his bride. He would be building a house. And get this, the bridegroom had full responsibility for the cost of the wedding. All of that right there was to demonstrate that this man had what it took to take care of his bride. And boy, once they got to the celebration, it was magnificent because this guy had been working so hard for a whole year and she had been waiting and preparing for this. And finally, the time comes, whole year. And I mean, this is a really big deal. Now, there's something really great to take note of here. Jesus has just spent the last 30 years of his life growing up in Nazareth, 30 years of obscurity in private life, and now he's going to begin his public ministry. And the bridge from his private life over to his public ministry is a miracle that he does for his family. 
and all of his closest friends that he had grown up with all his life. Isn't that great to think about? This didn't happen in Jerusalem. This didn't happen anywhere else but his hometown community as a gift for his family and his friends. They were the, they were the first ones to see. They'd been seeing him since he was a little boy and they were the first ones to see what he had never demonstrated publicly before that he truly was who he claimed to be. And you want to know what's incredibly, shockingly sad? Just a few months later, just a few months later, when he came back to Nazareth in Luke 4, his hometown, to his home church, his home synagogue that he'd grown up with, been at since he was Levi's age and earlier, since infant, where they all knew him so well. And he got up and he preached a sermon proclaiming his Messiahship that he had just proven at this wedding a few months earlier. And believe me, news of what he did would have spread through that whole community like wildfire. He comes back to tell him that this day, these prophecies and this Old Testament are fulfilled in your hearing. And the people in the synagogue that he grew up in and he worshiped in all his life, the people that he did this miracle for, what did they do? They took up stones and tried to murder him that day. The depravity of man on full display in the little synagogue of Nazareth that day. So here we are in Canaan in this great celebration. Verse 1 continues. And the mother of Jesus was there. And then verse 2. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So that's point one. The party. Next comes part two. The predicament. Look at how verse 3 starts out. When the wine ran out. And that's a problem. When the wine ran out, this is truly a major catastrophe. I mean, this is a colossal social embarrassment. The bridegroom, remember, has worked hard all year to prove that he could take care of his bride building a house. The wine runs out? Maybe he don't know how to plan things too well. The party, remember, was his responsibility. How are you going to run out of wine at the greatest celebration that these people were ever involved with when they, when these weddings came around? Let me tell you something. Life was tough in these days. We have it on easy street here in 21st century America. I mean, life was extreme. And hard to deal with every single day in, in this time period. And a celebration like this, it meant so much to everybody involved. It was, it was like a relief, like, like a little escape time period from the hardship of, of life for just a little while, just for, for those seven days. And you run out of wine. Now let's talk about this wine. For just a minute. 
In those days, the wine that was made from grapes and other kind of fruits was subject to fermentation. Because they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have icebox like we have here. So everything fermented and developed into alcohol. Dun, 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 dun. Now, to quench your thirst back then was something that you really had to be careful with because you couldn't go over to the faucet and just turn on the purified water. Dasani hadn't been invented yet. There's no bottled water you could run and go get. So sometimes to quench thirst without inducing drunkenness, wine was diluted with water to anywhere between one-third and one-tenth of strength. So it was regular for them to drink wine at different levels of dilution. So depending on the mixture, you could easily drink the, the diluted wine without getting drunk. But, but make no mistake. All of this was wine. All of it had some level of alcohol in it. Okay? Now, this is so simple. I don't know why people get make it so complicated. Drinking wine, drinking alcohol is not a sin. Getting drunk is. Is that too hard to understand? I mean, that's pretty simple, right? Now listen to me. If it happens to be your Christian conviction that drinking alcohol is a sin, as it is for some Christians, then you better not drink it because if you drink it, you're going to sin. If that's your conviction, if that's your conscience. You understand? And we, we understand that. But the plain and simple reasoning is the difference between drinking alcohol and getting drunk. And you know the difference. And I know the difference. And everybody in here knows the difference. And let me tell you something. Wine was a big part of any wedding celebration. And I would suspect that the wine at a wedding celebration would have been diluted at the merriment level. You know why? Because Psalm 104.15 says, and wine which makes a man's heart glad. So that's where the wedding wine would have been diluted at. And this one in Cana had the wine run out, this celebration. Big problem. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. In fact, I'm sure when the wine ran out, everybody knew the wine ran out because they didn't have Coke and they didn't have Sprite and they didn't have bottled water. The wine was it. So Mary's kind of Captain Obvious right there. And this is a several day event. Now, some have suggested, well, Mary just wanted Jesus to do a miracle right here. I mean, she'd been waiting for this. I mean, you know, she knew who he was. And that's possible. It is. 
She obviously knew what happened with John the Baptist and she knew that Jesus had left home and she knew now he was gathering followers. In fact, they were there that day as we read. So it's a possibility that she wanted him to do a miracle thinking maybe, wow, now maybe this is it. I mean, he's 30, right? Maybe now the miracles begin today. But but here's another thought, okay? By now it seems that Joseph has died because we never see any account in the Bible of Joseph during Jesus' adult life. Not a word in Scripture. So whenever Mary had a problem at home, who do you think she went to for a solution? And can you, can you just imagine he never had a bad idea in his life. He never had a wrong solution in his life. He's Jesus. He would know the way to solve every problem. He had the perfect solution to every dilemma. He, he had the perfect answer. For every predicament, everything that ever went wrong in the house, he knew why it went wrong and he knew how to make it right perfectly. He was the most wise, intelligent, resourceful person that has ever or will ever live on this earth. And Mary was in the house with him. Some of us are severely challenged in the fix-it-up department. I can't fix anything. And you know what's worse? I hate even trying to fix anything. But Jesus could fix all things. Plus, I mean, he cared about people like nobody else ever cared about anybody. He was kind and he was compassionate like no one else ever else has been, so who else would Mary go to with this problem? So it might just be that she went to him with this problem because he was the one she went to whenever there was any problem. So after Mary tells Jesus they have no wine in verse 3, we come to verse 4. And Jesus says to her, Woman, now, Notice he doesn't say mother. Specifically, it says woman. Now, if I was standing in here and Christy was standing over there and we were at the thing, I said, woman, come over here. He'd be like, dude, you in the sons of silence or something? No, in that culture, that expression was not harsh. Woman. It was courteous. It was like what most of us say here in the South, at least, ma'am. It was a very respectful way to address a woman. But I want you to notice that it's also not intimate like mother. So why would Jesus use this term, woman, here? Because I'm telling you, he's telling her, Today, our relationship 
has changed. From the way that it has been since I was a little baby up until this point. She is now no longer in a position to act as any kind of authority in his life. She's no longer in a position to tell him what to do. To make suggestions to him. This would be a big change because I would think that everything that she had ever asked him up until this point in his life, that he, being Jesus, would have responded in perfect obedience and perfect love, but that way of things is now changed. Because I want you to read your Bible. She played no role in his ministry. None. At all. When he was 12, he gave a preview of this. When he's in the temple talking to the officials, what did he say? I must be about what? My father's business. And on this day, his father's official business started and his mother's business ended. From here on out, he would be fully 100% totally engaged in his father's business. In fact, Jesus, the God man, let me remind you, never ask for suggestions from anybody. In fact, when people gave him suggestions, they would normally get rebuked like, get behind me, Satan, like he told Peter. Now, next here in verse 4, Jesus' tone, it's not rude, but it was abrupt. Maybe you could call it a mild rebuke, if you will. He, he says next, what, what does that have to do with us? And this is important. There's a deeper thing going on here. This demonstrates a change the years of submission and obedience of his pre-ministry life with his mother are over. Jesus is finished with his mother's business and now he's doing his father's business. And from here on out, we will hear him say over and over and over in the gospel of John, I will only do what the father tells me to do. I will only do my father's will. So, so he is distancing himself from that mother-son relationship which had existed for 30 years. And here at this point in this instance, to call her mother, you realize, would have kind of kept that type and frame of relationship intact. Woman shows us that she is now dealing not just with her son. She's dealing with the son of God. What does that have to do with us that the wine? That was a familiar expression back then. In fact, we see it a couple times in the Old Testament, also Matthew and Mark. Literally it, what to me and you? Literally from, from the Greek. What is it that concerns me and you together here with this? Nothing. What do we have in common here with this? Nothing. It's, it's literally a separating statement. Jesus is making clear he is now on his own with a very definite track 
for the rest of his life, from here on out, his Father's will is the only thing that matters every moment of every day. This is the complete opposite of any teaching that says that Mary has any function, any role at all in the life of Jesus after he entered into public ministry. Complete opposite. In fact, in Luke, let me give you an example. Luke eleven twenty seven. Jesus was speaking to the crowds. And one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and, and the breast at which you were nursed. And then he said, yes, she's the queen of heaven. Is that what he said? No. Verse 28. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it and say nothing about her. He completely distances himself from Mary. Now, listen to me. It's not that he didn't love her. It's not that he was being mean to her or harsh to her. Of course he loved her. But he has now assumed a higher position. He, she doesn't have any role to play in what he's doing. What's he doing? Folks, remember, this is God come to earth to do the most important work in history. That's what started on this day. She doesn't have any role in this. He's done with his mother's business. Now it's all about his father's business. That's not mean or harsh. That's fact. Okay? So anybody who says, well, if you can't go to Jesus, go to his mother and she will intercede for you with him. They don't even understand the relationship that Jesus and Mary had on earth, much less the way things work right now. And then next in verse 4, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Now this is the first time we see this statement. We're, we're going to see this statement quite a bit. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 17. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then we're finally going to get to my hour has come. This is a phrase that in its fullness looks at the cross. At the hour of his death in his resurrection. And what Jesus is saying here is, look, we don't have anything in common now because I am now the Son of God on a divine time schedule that, that culminates in my death. And every single second of every single day from now to that moment is leading to that moment. That is why I am breathing and existing on this earth. From here on out, every event, every issue, every circumstance is leading up to that final hour on Calvary's tree. And that mission has now begun today at this wedding. He is saying here, the final hour of my death and resurrection is sovereignly set in place by God and all events that lead up to that are determined by God. I'm sorry, 
Mary has no role in the divine timetable, practically speaking. Sure, she prayed for him and all the rest, but that's not what we're talking about. And then Mary bows out in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to do, you do it. And then he does what she asked. Why? Because he had made his point to her. I love what R.C. Sproul says about this. No one ever received better instructions from anybody in all of history than these servants received from the mother of Jesus when she told them to follow Jesus' orders. That exhortation has application far beyond the immediate task that these servants had to do. Great quote. And it just so happens that this event is on the divine timetable. Of course, she wouldn't have known that. Again, I think she's just looking for a solution to the problem. But it was on God's list to be done. Guess what? That's why we're still reading about it today, 2,000 years later. We're still reading about it this very day. So we go from the predicament now to the provision. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Now, now, now these were, these were not for drinking. These were for purification. The Jews always had to purify everything. I mean, they constantly washed their hands and their utensils and their plates and, and it wasn't just about being clean. It was part of that, of course, yeah. But it was more about ritual and purification rites and ceremonies. So these would have been what the wedding guests used to go through their ceremonial washings before the celebration. Verse 7. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up, notice, to the brim. And I'm going to tell you, that's what he wanted. Because if they weren't filled to the brim, somebody would be able to say, well, he just slipped in there and added some wine into the water. But if the water goes all the way to the brim, to the top, there's not any room left to put anything else. Verse 8. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. The head waiter was like the maitre d', the chief waiter. Draw some out one of them pots and take it over there to him. Verse 9. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine. When did that happen? It happened between verse 7 and verse 8. They filled the pots to the brim. They drew some out. They took it to the waiter. And by the time it gets to him and tasting it, wine it had become. Just like so many things in the Bible, this is so understated. When the head waiter tasted the wine, which had wet water, which had become wine. Folks, do you understand that that is humanly impossible? 
you get wine? Well, you get grapes from vines, from seeds, and then the vine grows and sunlight and earth and water. Then you got to crush the grapes like they stomped on them and then strain the grapes. You see any grapes here? Any vines? No seeds? No sunlight? Nothing? If he had wanted to, he could have said, become wine. He didn't even have to say it. Verse 9, again, when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, look at this, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. Oh, they knew what happened. And think of this. I mean, think of this. These guys, these servants, they were completely unknowing, disinterested eyewitnesses giving testimony that he had literally created wine to replace water. Where did the water go? And by the way, this was the best wine this world has ever known. Chateau Margot Bordeaux has nothing on the wine that the God-man makes out of nothing. And it becomes very apparent right away because look next in verses 9 and 10. The head waiter called the bridegroom, verse 10, and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Oh, he's saying nobody does this. Nobody keeps the quality of wine like this until the end. And you can imagine the bridegroom. He don't know what happened, but boy, yeah, that's right. That's me. And I'm sure the head waiter was much more dramatic and expressive than how this reads right here. Because he ain't never tasted no wine like this in his whole life. So... We have this testimony of an amazing, creative miracle in the mouth of people really who have no stake in trying to prove anything about Jesus. They just saw it happen, reported it. And then the party rolls on and the best wine gets served. And then verse 11 gives us the final word on this. The final word is purpose. We've seen the party, the predicament, the provision. Now lastly, the purpose. Look at verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So again, we're seeing the purpose of the gospel of John. Remember what the purpose of the gospel of John thing? These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God and believing have eternal life in his name. That's the purpose. Remember what John told us back in 
John 1, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John the apostle first began to really behold that glory right here on this day at the wedding in Cana. And again, for every person, either you believe this or you don't. Either you believe it happened or you do not. Listen, great prophets, powerful religious leaders cannot make water into wine. Muhammad never made water into wine. Buddha never made water into wine. Joseph Smith never made water into wine. Mary Baker Eddy never made water into wine. Only the God-man can do that. Believe in him. And you will live eternally. Reject him. And you will die an eternal death in outer darkness. There's no middle ground. I'm telling you today. Choose this day what you will believe and who it is that you will serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible first public miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's all we had, it would prove his deity. There are so many other things. And John even tells us if everything was written, it wouldn't have enough books. Because he is. That's our confession at this church, that he is Lord, that he is King Jesus, King of the universe, Lord and Master of our lives. I pray if there are any here who have not bowed the knee to him in Bible repentance and saving faith, that you would draw them effectually to yourself. And for the rest of us who believe, Lord, I just pray that we would just recognize today the magnitude of what it is to be adopted by grace into the family of King Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray today. Amen.